Okay, how many of you have started having uh, devotions in Leviticus? Oh, man. Okay. All right, I had one in the first service and one in the second service. Okay, two. You're my heroes. The rest of you, get with the program. Okay? (laughs) Uh, We're in a series, Finding Jesus in Leviticus. Remember last week, we started with the idea that the Old Testament reflects God's love for us. Uh, There's no question about that. From the very beginning, as soon as we did something stupid like sin against him, he started pursuing us, and he didn't quit. He kept coming and kept coming and kept coming, and he does that all the time, and it reveals his love for us, and Leviticus, therefore, reveals his heart. I know it's hard to believe because Leviticus has a whole lot of commands and laws, and so what we're doing is we're looking underneath all of those commands all of those laws to get to what's underneath it, what God is actually doing. You see, Leviticus is the blueprint. It's the design for the new covenant. So everything we find in Leviticus, we will find in the New Testament. We will find Jesus all throughout Leviticus, and we find ourselves all throughout Leviticus because it gives us a blueprint for what his what he wants to do. It's not until the Holy Spirit comes with the new covenant at the resurrection and Pentecost that the new covenant is actually um, implemented, but and we can live it out, but it's all present in the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives us the design of what God intended. And what, what did God design, or what did he intend? He intended to uh, prepare a people for his own, to be in relationship with, that's what. So you remember last week we talked about sacrifice. Now when we talk about sacrifice, and today we're going to talk about priesthood, sacrifice and priesthood were very common, um, it was very familiar to the people in the ancient world. Sacrifices were things that they offered. Now remember, we're the setting where we are. You get to be the slaves. You get to play the role of the slaves in Israel. And you've just come out of Egypt. And uh, you're at the base of Mount Sinai, sitting on the edge of your sand dunes, hearing these rules for the first time. And you're excited for several reasons. Number one, God spoke. None of the gods in the ancient world spoke. Well, we now know they weren't real, but they didn't know that. And so God spoke. They would have been familiar, the Israelites, I'm sure, with all of the trade practices, religious practices. I mean, people would come and go in and out of Egypt. And so they're familiar. The world's not that big. And so they knew. And so all of a sudden, we have a God who speaks. We don't have to guess. And he begins to tell us what to do. And he starts, the revelation begins, with an invitation. When anyone, if anyone offers a sacrifice... And so the law in Leviticus is an invitation into a relationship with God. Now remember, that's not the way they thought about the gods. The gods were to be appeased. In fact, if the gods stayed out of our business, that was a good thing, unless they want to bless us. And then we're always open for that. But otherwise, let's keep the gods out. Let's keep them happy. We're not interested in a relationship with them. We're interested in keeping them appeased and uh, We're not interested in emulating them, becoming like them. Uh, They let them do their own thing. And here we have a God that says, no, 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 come, come. So we looked at the, uh, we looked at the sacrifices last week, Leviticus 1 through 7. We looked at two of them in particular, but Leviticus 1 through 7 is the introduction on how to enter into God's presence, and not only God's presence, but how to enter into healthy community with each other. That's what the sacrifices are for. They haven't changed any. They're still like that today. We just don't offer animals. But the sacrifices are still there. We'll talk about that in just a moment. 
And so the burnt offering and the sin offering were fulfilled in Jesus. That had to do with sin. So basically, God said, if you sin, then unintentionally, then come offer an animal or whatever it is that you're going to offer, according to the sacrifice, the offering, and that's okay. That's how you can re-engage God's presence. Now remember, there's four categories. You have the holy, you have the clean, you have the unclean, and you have the wicked. We're not going to deal with the wicked, okay? Uh, Very little in Leviticus, and they may come up. We're going to deal with the other three categories. The unclean, the clean, and the holy. Now God, the way he designed this Old Testament, and the way he interacted with people, was to teach them very much like toddlers. That's how I look at it. So all the way, let me go this way, all the way back in Exodus, you remember the story. They... um, at the end of Exodus 24, God had laid out the basic rules of the covenant. And they said, all that God said, we will do. And then they turned right around and made the golden calf. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? I just love it. We'll come back to that one in just a moment. And so what God did then was he said, all right, I have to teach them. That I'm, I'm thinking maybe how God thought. I have to teach them about my presence. So he was going to be in the center of the nation. And because they sinned against him, he took his tent and moved it way out on the horizon. Way out here. Now, the people could stand at their tents and watch Moses come out here and meet with God. But they didn't have a perspective of omnipresence, God everywhere like we do. And so God is teaching them. He's giving them a time out. Like you put your two-year-old in the corner for doing something wrong for a period of time. And that's what he does. They're over here and he's over here. After a period of time, he brings his tent back over here and puts it in the middle of the nation. And so God is using this type of imagery all through the, all through the Old Testament, uh, the, the Pentateuch, to teach, them, to teach them about who he is. So they were familiar with sacrifices. Remember we said last week that the sacrifices were, in the pagan nations, the sacrifices were used to appease the gods and to discern the will of the gods. That's not what sacrifices were for in Leviticus. Sacrifices were an invitation into a relationship. That's what they were. That's why we said that the Old Testament is a love story and Leviticus is God's own heart being revealed. Come into my presence. And if you sin, then we'll figure it out. So now we're back to the clean and the unclean. So the holy is where God dwells. That's his world. The clean or the common is where we live. And then if we sin or we get a disease or something like that, we become unclean. It's not necessarily bad. And we're going to see later on in Leviticus the rules to move us back to the clean. If we're unclean, we cannot enter the temple or the tabernacle or the tent because that's where God dwells and God is holy. We have to be clean. That's our natural state to enter into his presence. So he puts in place rules to guide these three categories to tell us how to go back. And, you know, if we end up over here, not a big deal. We're going to see this one often in just a couple of weeks, actually, starting to appear how to move from here to here. And it's not, a, it's not a situation of bad and good. It's a situation of him teaching them, just like you would a toddler, what his world is like. And therefore, that's what we are going to be like one day. And so he's, he's teaching them. You think of the rules, a lot of them that way. The rules also, the laws also served another purpose, and that was to make Israel holy. So we're very much like Canaan. So he gives us a law, and now we're one step away from Canaan. 
He gives us a second law. Now we're two steps away. Third law, now we're three steps away. So every one of these laws separates them from the surrounding nations so that they can perform their function as a sacrifice and as a priest. We'll come back to that in just a second. So the sacrifices were there to invite us into a relationship. Now Hebrews tells us that Jesus satisfied the burnt offering and the sin offering. So those two sacrifices are done. They're permanently fulfilled. We're forgiven. Praise the Lord, huh? And so we, we live a great life. But the other sacrifices are still there. So one of the ones we looked at last week was the fellowship offering. When you, he says in Leviticus uh, 3 uh, and 7, I think, when you make a fellowship offering, if you're doing it as a thanksgiving offering, okay, then you're to take your bull down to the, to the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, slit its throat, give the guts to God. That goes on the burnt offering. That's his part. Give a steak to the priest, and you have to eat the rest before sundown. We said last week, there's no way you can eat the rest before sundown. You're just one person. Nobody can eat a bull. And so what's the implication? Somebody said it well last week. It's a barbecue. It's me saying to you, I'm going to offer one of my prized bulls because God has given me a child or a grandchild or blessed me or whatever, and I want all of you to come, to come with me and to enjoy that with me. So the Thanksgiving offering was a community affair, and it's designed to promote goodness in the community, health. And therefore, they began to be a shining light. I used that imagery last week. Shining light over on the hill because the world's in darkness and you can see a shining light and draws people. And so if they come, they should walk in and see us enjoying each other. Okay? The, the inference is that they're going to come. So let's think back about an older metaphor now. Okay, here's God, and he creates a kaleidoscope of nations. And then he chooses one of the nations to reach the rest. How are they going to learn to do that? That's what today is all about. He's going to choose one of the tribes within the nation to mediate for the other tribes. And then that becomes a picture, a model of how they as a nation can reach the other nations. But the inference is that the world is going to look because God cares very much about this world. He cares. He loves every human out there. And so when we do our job, then the inference is that they're going to come. That's what Paul's, what his assumption was in the Corinthian epistles. When he says, if an unbeliever comes into your midst and you're being very chaotic, they're going to think you're insane. Well, his assumption is that they're going to come. It's really interesting. A number of years ago, I taught a conference of pastors in uh, northeast India. We're, way, we're hours away by jeep from uh, the nearest big town or airport. And so um, we, we had this area about this big, and we had a couple hundred pastors and uh, church people, and um, the Hindus in the village were all curious, and they all lined the wall outside. They all lined the wall and just watched us for two or three days very curious about what we were doing. That's what Paul was thinking about. They're going to come because we're a light. And so the sacrifice of thanksgiving has not changed. We just don't offer an animal with it, but we still offer up the sacrifice. Hebrews, we saw that last week, and let us offer up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. There it is. 
But now we know the original Thanksgiving offering was designed to promote community. And so now we're learning something about worship. Yes, worship is in fact uh, honoring the Lord, but it's also a statement of testimony. That's why Paul could say unbelievers are going to come. Because they're curious. Our worship needs to be authentic so that people can see the joy that it brings. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 9 that your offering is an example of your faith. It's a, it's, it's a portrayal of your faith in the gospel. And so when an unbeliever comes in, they should see us being generous. By the way, thank you. Thanks for being generous. I try to say that every Sunday somewhere. Thanks for being generous. You know, we have the offering things here, and you guys give online. And uh, last November or whatever, when, when I made the comment that uh, the giving's down a little bit, Jude told me that, and I said, no problem. Our people know what to do. They just need information. So I made the comment and kind of had fun with it that our giving's down. You guys filled the coffers. Thank you. You're making it possible for us to continue to help people in our county, and we're very grateful for that. And so being generous is a sign of your faith. Your belief in the gospel is what Paul says. So everything we do should be authentic because then it becomes uh, a, draw, a magnet to draw people. So when they walk in, they can say, wow, these people really believe. Look at this. Look at the smile on their face when they praise the Lord in the midst of a crazy world, the craziest world I've seen. And here they are smiling at rest. And not only that, they're being generous. We are known around the county for being a generous church and taking care of the poor. Thank you for that. That's on you. You're the ones that make that happen. So the sacrifice of praise or thanksgiving is still offered up. It's just not with an animal. So all of the sacrifices outside the burnt offering and the sin offering are still part of our world. Just no animals around it. So today we're talking about the priesthood. So when we start to talk about the priesthood, immediately we have a surprise. In Leviticus 8, the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron and his sons. Okay, now hold on. You have to understand why that's a surprise. Okay, so now let's go all the way back to Exodus. So Leviticus is down the road a little ways. You're still sitting in the sand listening to these commands and hearing them for the first time, thrilled. Just thrilled because these commands are easy to obey. They're not complex. They're not ambiguous. They're very clear. And the Lord is telling you, just do these things. There's nothing complex, right? You got mold on the wall, scrape it off. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Now, they're strange to us, but not strange to them. They're refreshing to them. So let's back up to Exodus 24. We're at the end of Exodus 24. Then uh, Exodus 19 to Exodus 24, the basic rules of the covenant that God entered into. Same rules apply today, the same covenant. We're going to see Peter actually quote it, that that we're in that covenant. And so at the end of Exodus 24... Uh, God tells Moses, consecrate Aaron and his sons for the priesthood. And then, the golden calf. (laughs) Moses goes back up on the mountain, and the golden calf occurs. Aaron disappears from the story. He's gone. He doesn't reappear until this verse. So put yourselves in in the place of these people. They don't know the rules yet because the Old Testament hasn't been written. Moses, that fellow, is up on the mountain getting them. And so, uh, what happens when God gets angry with you? You don't want the gods angry with you. They didn't quite know yet there's only one God. All they know is they built this golden calf, and Aaron was the one who built it, 
And Moses came down, broke the tablets, and he's angry and they get punished. So what's the natural thought about Aaron and the priesthood? He's done. Right? What a surprise that down here in Leviticus 8, the Lord says, bring Aaron and his sons forward now. Oh, wait a minute. You're not going to punish Aaron for that. No. No, I still got my plan to carry out. And so he's going to make Aaron the priest. So let's go back here and look what happens between Exodus 34 and Leviticus 8. Three big things. Okay, the rest of Exodus is about the tabernacle. Because what the golden calf revealed, and this is how God largely operates, he surfaces the need before he solves it. Okay? All the way back to the garden before sin. He had Adam name all the animals, and there was no, there was no one that corresponded to him. Then God made a woman. So here we are. Um, the, the, um, I've said this, used different ways of saying it, that God is often, when he's silent, Moses up on the mountain, God's not talking. Not to them, he's talking to Moses. And it's often like um, a father or a mother with a two-year-old. When God gets silent in your life, that's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. That just means that he's around the corner as a good parent watching a two-year-old. I wonder what they're going to do. Are they going to do what they're not supposed to do? Are they going to try to walk? What are they going to do? They're under his protection. They're covered by his will. He's just silent. When God is silent, that's when you get a chance to find out what your faith is made of. That's what you get a chance to find out. And so Moses is gone, and they make the golden calf. And it revealed the need for several things. The rest of Exodus deals with the the building of the tabernacle. It revealed the need for a place where God could be in their midst. They didn't understand the concept of omniscience, I don't think. And so he gives them a place called a tabernacle. They had to have a place. They needed structure, if you will. Then Leviticus 1 through 7, the next major section, are the sacrifices. They need, they need to know how to come into his presence. Okay, that's what that section is. That's the second part of the structure. And then Leviticus 8 through 10 is the priesthood. They needed priests to teach them how and show them how to do these, follow these sacrifices and do it the right way. So those are the three key elements of the structure of, Levit- of Israel's whole history now. The temple, the priesthood, and sacrifice. All three of those are present in the New Testament. We are the spiritual temple. We're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, and we are believer priests. So the three main sections of the law are about us. Do you get it? We just don't offer animals anymore. But underneath the commands, we begin to see the heartbeat of what God desired all along. That's what we see. Okay? And the new covenant where he takes out our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, by doing that, with the sending of the Spirit, our hearts begin to beat with his. Okay? See the picture? That's what Leviticus is all about. Don't get caught up in the commands. Get caught up in the reasons for the commands because that's what endures. So our heart beat is the same as his now. 
So now we're going to talk about the priesthood. This is important. It's a very important part. It's describing who we are. Because remember I said that he's, he made a kaleidoscope of nations so we could all connect with him with our language and our cultures and all of that. And so then he chose one, Israel, to reach the rest. So then within Israel, he has to teach him. So he chooses one tribe to be the priest to mediate on behalf of the other tribes to show them how to, to do the sacrifices, to show them how to live out their lives. That's what they were for. And that's how he chose to teach the nation is through the priesthood. And he chose one tribe, which is unusual in the ancient world. Depending on the nation, they could either inherit it or they could buy the priesthood. And so there was no difference between the priesthood and everybody else that the priest had power. But in our, in our nation, in Israel's nation, he chose one tribe to communicate something very significant. There's a difference between the profane or the common, the normal, and the holy. Now we're back to the three categories. And the priesthood was to reveal to them, to demonstrate it, to teach it, to model it, to help them see what the common or the clean was all about and the holy. And so by separating one tribe, he just made it very special. And they became a model. They were to be a model for the rest of the nation. Because remember, he's going to make all of you priests. That was his promise at Mount Sinai, to make all of you priests. Okay, so he's consecrated, he's done everything. So what did the priests actually do? Well, there's three responsibilities that the priests had. Three big ones. And they're still true today. They haven't changed. These are your responsibilities. So when I bring these responsibilities up, these are your responsibilities as a priest. Can I remember, when I use the metaphor of sacrifice or priest, sacrifice is never a sacrifice on its own behalf. It's always offered to God on behalf of someone. Now, many of you, if you come from high, high church backgrounds, think of sacrifice as something that you give up. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's fine. But, but when you look at the biblical concept of sacrifice, it's bigger than that. It's actually what you give up on behalf of someone else. So in the beginning, I said, I'm going to praise the Lord and thank him for my new son. So I'm going to take my prized bull. That's what makes it a sacrifice and offer it to him on behalf of the community and to say thank you for what he's done. So when Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, see, you're the priceless one right there. And you are to offer yourself on behalf of someone else. That's what a sacrifice really is from a biblical perspective. So when we get to Lent here in about uh, five, six weeks, we're going to talk about that, that we give, up, we, we give up something, but we do it specifically for someone else. That's what makes it a sacrifice. Okay. Well, the same is true for priests. When I say you're a priest, you should look around and say, who on earth am I a priest on behalf of? All the people out there. And each other. That's who. So let's look at the three responsibilities of a priest. One is found in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. And he says, uh, he's talking about an ordinance that he put in place. Verse 10, so that you could distinguish between the holy and the common. And between the unclean and the clean. There are the categories. Holy, common, or clean, and unclean. We're going to see more of those in the future. Coming up. So you can distinguish between them and so that you can teach the Israelites all the decrees of the Lord 
that the Lord has given them through Moses. Okay, now we're thinking of teaching as kind of teaching rules and all of that. Think of it differently. Think of this book. It's a living document, the very words of God. So when he says you're going to teach them all the decrees, what he's actually saying is you're going to teach them about this heart of God. Because what God really is after is a community for his own, his, to be in relationship with. That's talking about a loving heart. And so all of these commands and rules, they're, they're kind of strange to us. I get it. You just have to overlook it, okay? But all, these, all the commands, when you get them underneath, underneath it, what you see is God is trying to restore us back to what he created us to be, true humans, where we enjoy and love each other. And so when he says, teach them the ordinances, he's not being pharisaical. Okay, you think of the Pharisees as teaching the laws and rules, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. That's not it. It's really teaching the people what God's heart is all about. You see, that's the heart of the gospel. We have a God who loves us. That's the gospel. The proof of it is the cross. But the heart of the gospel is he cares very much for us in this entire creation. He made it. He thinks it's very good. He's got to fix a problem. We call that the sin problem, depravity. But no, he loves every human on this planet. And so by teaching the decrees, he is passing on the heart of God. And that's how I think, honestly, of my job, my responsibility up here. I already know that within a couple of days you won't remember what passages I read today. I know that. It's just part of life. Okay? That's not my goal. My goal is not even that you can articulate what I taught. My true goal is that somehow in here you connect with the Lord. I have this picture of all of you taking a half step closer to the Lord because of our time in the Word. That's one goal. The other goal is that you become a little bit more curious about this book, this crazy, wonderful book. Just a little bit more curious. That's really what my goal is. You see, as a, as a teacher up here and as a priest and you're all priests, I'm bringing the truth of God out. So what this is saying is, priority number one, is I'm bringing God to you. See it? That's the first responsibility of the priest, is to bring God to the people so they can understand his heart. The second one is found in Leviticus 9. We're going to back up just a chapter. In verse uh, Leviticus 9, 15, uh, Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people. It goes on and describes it. So the second thing is that the priests, priority number one, we bring God out to the people. The second thing we do is we bring the people to God, and that comes through the form of sacrifice or offering. You see what we're doing? We're building a relationship. That's what mediation is all about. Let me help you know who God is and let me help you come into God's presence. That's, that's the true heart of mediation is the formation of a relationship. It's not about the rules. Okay, the third thing, and this is icing on the cake, this is the real fun part, is found in Leviticus 9.22. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people. Sometimes we lift our hands to God, and sometimes we lift our hands to the people. 
In fact, in uh, Nepal, when they pray for me, I'll have 300 pastors in a big space like this. And when they all pray, you know what they do? They all do this and put their hands out toward me because they're praying for me. They get it. That's what they're doing. And so he says, they bless the people. He, he lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. This is the icing on the cake to bless people. How many times have we talked about God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others? That's why I say thank you every week for your generosity to bless you and to tell you that you're loved. And we very much appreciate your generosity. You can, you can bless people with finances. You can bless them with emotions. You can, there's so many ways. I just got back last night from Kansas City. My aunt, my uncle died seven weeks ago. You may remember I flew out for the funeral, died of cancer. So my 82-year-old aunt is now seven weeks. And for those of you that have lost somebody, you know that that's a critical time. The meals have stopped. The cards have stopped. The phone calls have stopped. The visits have stopped. So I picked that time on purpose, hopped the plane, flew out, and just sat with my aunt for two days. Just sat with her. We had no agenda other than to eat a barbecue because we're in Kansas City. And you know what? We probably hugged each other 150 times and just talked. And I've been through it. You know, I lost my first wife. And so all of a sudden now, she, and this is her niece who I lost, all of a sudden now, uh, she is uh, reflecting back 37 years ago when Judy died and it's making more sense to her now. Now she's feeling the loneliness, right? And, uh, um, and it meant a lot that we just sat there for two days. I flew out there just to bless her, just to be with her and help her think it through. And when we left the part to go to the airport, she didn't want to let go, and I didn't either. We're very close. That's the, that's the icing on the cake to be a priest, is to bless people. Okay, now these three things, they begin to appear in the New Testament. Okay, if we, when you, in Hebrews chapter 4 through 10, you have the whole um, story of Jesus being our, new, our high priest and offering this sacrifice for us. But in Hebrews 10, 24, at the conclusion of this long section, here's what he says, and you're all familiar with this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's being a priest. That's helping each other to do the right thing. The reason why the priests were to teach the law was to give them God's heart. And that means doing good to each other. That's what it means. That's the conclusion to the section there. When you turn to... um, um, Romans, at the end of Romans, Paul actually uses the verb for priest. Um, actually, it's an adjective. He's talking about being a priest. And, and this is a picture of us. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse 15. I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. This is being a priest. He's bringing God out to the people. He's teaching them. That's what the New Testament does. The New Testament is an actual example of what it means to be a priest because it's teaching us all about who the Lord is. He goes on from there. Um, Because of the grace of God that God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, so that the uh, the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There you've got... 
you've got offering and um, priesthood right in the same sentence. Okay? So he brought the word of God out to the people so that he can perform his priestly duty of bringing the Gentiles back to the Lord as an offering. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what God desires, that we all enter as in, into his presence. So there you see it in Romans. You go back to, go back to 1 Peter, and Peter actually quotes um, Exodus 19 to tell us that this covenant applied to us. He starts off in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone... Now remember, he's taking the heart of stone out and put the heart of flesh in. A living heart. A living heartbeat. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. There's the temple. To be a holy priesthood, that's our ministry. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. All three are present. The three big sections of the law in one sentence. You see it? We're being built into a holy temple to offer up sacrifices and to fulfill our priestly responsibilities. All in one verse. And what is that priestly responsibility? If you get out of verse 9, he quotes Exodus 19. It's, they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai. And he says, if you obey my commands fully, here's what's going to happen to you. And Peter quotes it. You are now a chosen people. We are God's precious possession. We are chosen by him. We are a holy priesthood. We are a holy nation. A true, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A true holy nation. God's special possession. Why? Here's the priestly duty so that we may declare the praises of, who call, of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's being a priest. That's being a priest. Speaking the truth. You see, that's the most incredible news the world has ever seen. We tend to focus the gospel on the cross, and I get it, that is the heart of the gospel. Okay, the cross is what made it possible, but the gospel itself is so big. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's our ministry. That is our privilege to be priests on behalf of the world. Priest does three things. We bring God out to the people. We introduce them to Him. Then we bring the people back to God into relationship with Him as an offering. And then we bless Him. We just bless Him. We just love Him. We just love the world and bless the world. That's what a priest does. Father, thank you for being our God. Thanks for never giving up on us. Thanks for having such a rich, rich heart for us that pursues us. We're so very grateful. And thanks for giving us the wonderful privilege of being called your priest. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. For those of you that are watching online, thanks so much for joining us. 
Uh, this concludes the online portion of our service.